November 11, 2012, lecture discussion number 88 on the Book of Romans. And I'm going to uh, interrupt uh, lecture number 88 on the Book of Romans, and I'm going to read some stuff that that has come about because uh, obviously we had a national election, and uh, a couple of things I need to really discuss very fast. First off, there are some great signs that come for us. One of those signs is salt. When you study salt, you see that it is a it is a sign to the church. So the more you understand what salt means in the Bible, the better off you are. We have Ezekiel 38, as you know, which is the great confederate uh, confederacy that develops and invades Israel from the north. Uh, let me make sure I get all of these on here correctly in the right order. Um, we have this peace covenant that is confirmed, our treaty, if you will, but it's a essentially a covenant that gets confirmed. First, the covenant is drawn up, and then the second pace of it, or the second uh, aspect of it, is the a confirmation of it. Now, the peace treaty that that uh, is drawn up, I think, is a result of the war of Ezekiel 38, and is a result of the issue of salt in one way or another. may not be, but know that those three are great, great signs. Now, the fourth great, great sign is that we will have an economic or a governmental, economic governmental Babylon as opposed to ecclesiastical Babylon. Most people are familiar with the ecclesiastical Babylon. They understand that there will be one church at the end of the age, but there will also be an ecclesi—I'm sorry, an economic system, a one-world currency, if you will, uh, the ability to control the entire economics of the whole world. Those are two things that the Antichrist uh, has in place, an ecclesiastical Babylon and a governmental or economic Babylon. Also involved in this is war. As you know, I have the war of Ezekiel 38, but I have angelic war. I have human angelic war, uh, which gets me back into Noah's Ark. So those are seven things that I always talk about when I get into this subject, um, and they're coming. I was telling Jonas earlier, um, when we started the week, last week, uh, to give it to you in some kind of perspective that might make sense, Ezekiel 38 from from was... Uh, out the door, past the connex, into the woods back there from where I'm standing. That's this war right here. Ezekiel 38 on Monday, November 5th, was probably out in the woods over there, a couple hundred yards away. I am going to tell you that I believe Ezekiel 38, the war from the Confederacy that rises up to destroy Israel, I think it's it's in the building. In fact, I think it's in the middle of the church now. I think it's sitting next to Bill or between Bill and Troy. That's how close. It jumped. Bam. And that, that can't be set aside. Let me read some of these quotes from John Adams for you. Uh, let me read this guy first. Uh, sorry. Um, his name is George Weigel. A war in the Middle East is now certain. And sooner. The children and grandchildren of November 7th's voters have been condemned to bear the, wor- bear the burden of what is certainly an unpayable mountain of debt and an unserviceable mountain of debt. So this war is certain and economic government 
or governmental control Babylon is now certain. In the words of this gentleman, I think he's right. He says, goes on to say this, the American culture war has been markedly intensified as those who booed God, celebrated an unfettered abortion license, canonized a Sandra Fluke, and sacramentalized sodomy at the Democratic National Convention will have been embold, will now be emboldened to advance the cause of lifestyle libertinism through coercive state power. So, that's the salt. The salt is the preservative. I hope you understand that. It is what stops the decay of the dead body. Matthew 5.13 You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? And the it of that sentence is the earth. In other words, if the salt is stopping the decay, it is stopping the deterioration, or if it is inhibiting the putrid stench of the dead body, and the salt is no longer able to be salt, then what happens to the body? It goes very quickly into decay and into corruption. So we, the salt, is slowly but surely being removed from the earth. Now, I believe the salt will be rapidly removed and the body will go into almost instant decay. What is my... Why do I say that? It's the rapture. The, God will come and take the salt out of the body and the body will become a, a putrid stench almost immediately. He will remove his hand and let the people who are here go the way they wish to go. Don't stop them. Those of you who think, by the way, that we are a moral country now, you surely don't think that anymore. We have gone, you know, they talk, they've been talking about the tipping point for as long as I can remember. John Adams talked about the tipping point. The tipping point being when the immoral outnumber the moral. I will read this for you. I know you've all heard it. I hope you have. Our Constitution, John Adams wrote this, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to be the government of any other. So, as this country destroys itself with immorality, and that's, that's happened so much, it's accelerated in my lifetime, and if you talk to your parents... It accelerated in their lifetime. They were frightened of it, but if they saw what we have, they would be stunned. As the salt loses its flavor, the body rushes to corruption. A war in the Middle East, a collapse of the economic system. All we're missing on my list here of those four things is this peace covenant. I think the peace covenant is a result of that war, Ezekiel 38. Now, salt retards decay. If the salt is removed, the decay accelerates. People have asked me, um, and I've heard it on on different parts of the media, has the country been lost? Yes. We are now to the place where the immoral are overcoming the salt and will continue to overcome the salt. How much time do we have? That's a, this is an interesting thing to consider. 
I don't know how much study, or if you've been here often when I've talked about Ezekiel 38, but that is a supernatural event. God will do things that are absolutely, unmistakably supernatural, and then what does that mean to us? We stop being people of a certain uh, definition. We stop being the people who, blessed are those who have seen. Remember Christ talking to Thomas? I'm sorry, blessed are those, you have seen and you have believed, he said to Thomas, but blessed are those who have not seen. So there are the seers and the not seers. We have been a not seer all the way to this, all the way to this point in our lives. But if Ezekiel 38 happens soon, then we become seers. We become those who have seen, which is an extraordinary change. What are the implications to you if you are now someone who has seen? You know, I, I mean, I have people tell me all the time, well, I, you know, I'm just not totally sure about all of this. I can, I can think it through and I can read my Bible and study the prophecies and I see all the complexity and the interconnection. And I, I, but golly, I, I, I wish I could see something. We have entire denominations based on faking you seeing something. As opposed to really seeing Ezekiel 38 will be the real thing. You, this is going to happen. This economic collapse. One of the latest estimates that we will, the dollar will completely uh, be gone. Do you see any of this? Do you watch or read any of it? When do they think the dollar is going to be insolvent? You see, what, what are we doing with quantitative easing? We're printing money. Eventually, we keep printing money. That's why fuel prices are going up, oil's going up, food's going up. We're, we're inflating. If they continue to print and spend money, what will happen to the dollar? It will fail. And, and the establishment of an economic Babylon is at the doorstep, as is Ezekiel 38, as is the fact that we have gone past the tipping point and we now have decay outpacing the preservative capability of the salt. That has happened in your lifetimes. Read a few more things from John Adams before I go to the lecture here. Remember, he said, democracy never lasts. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There was never a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. He said this, the Hebrews have done more to civilize men than any other nation. If I were an atheist and believed blind eternal fate, I should still believe that fate had ordained the Jews to be the most essential instrument for civilizing the nations. There is danger from all men. The only maxim of a free government ought to be to trust no man living with power to endanger the public liberty. Because power corrupts, society demands for moral authority and character to increase as the importance of the position increases. He is saying to you, the higher and more power you have, the more moral that person needs to be. How moral was this person? How moral was this person? Pers- 
we are electing men who are less and less moral and giving them more and more power. Liberty, he said, according to my metaphysics, is a self-determining power and an intellectual agent. It implies thought and choice and power. That is, by the way, where I get my question. If I do not have free will, if I do not have liberty, liberty in the sense of my being, if my being is not free, if I do not have free will, do I exist? And then finally, let me ask you this question. Did you follow the, the uh, exit polling? There was a few things that were voted on. One of the things that were voted on was, oh, uh, we had the largest gender gap in the history uh, of uh, polling, by the way. Uh, single women went overwhelmingly um, for Mr. Obama, President Obama. Why did they do so? Did you see? Why? Tell me. Yell it out. Abortion. That's absolutely right. Contraceptive, reproductive rights, abortion. They desperately wanted the right to kill their children without any involvement from any of societal's uh, society in any way. And it's astonishing to me. John Adams wrote this which is going to make people mad. But it fits into our Adam and Eve discussion, and I don't agree with it, but I just want you to know what he thought. Because he was right on liberty. He was right that our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people and will not work for an immoral people. And we are now an immoral people. The moral are outnumbered horribly now by the immoral. You can call it left-to-center or right-to-center, but it's really immoral versus moral. He wrote this, I must not write a word to you about politics because you are a woman. I can't wait for the mail. But... uh, Very soon, we will see the salt lose its flavor or its ability to stop the deterioration of the body, which is very close in this country. Pretty soon it will be worldwide. I think we are the last place where the salt even has a chance. Pretty soon the salt will lose its flavor. Ezekiel 38 will occur when the Confederacy is wiped out then everyone will sue Israel for peace. And we will have a peace covenant established. And then the Antichrist will come and confirm that peace covenant. But is it really peace? No, it's fake peace. Sorry, fake peace. And and in concert with that will be economic, governmental Babylon. And they are, they are right here. Used to be way over there. I remember when I was the age of some of you, a young man in college, completely brain damaged, with no ability to think at all. I thought, wow, that'll never happen in my lifetime. None of this will happen. And then as my life has gone on, it's just, it keeps moving towards me. And now I think, my goodness, it is almost right here in front of my face. 
And if they are right that our economy will collapse within 18 to 16 to 18 months, I don't know if I mentioned that. I asked the question. I don't know if I followed up. But in less than two years, they think the dollar may collapse. If that happens, some of you are, are economic professionals. I see Catherine. Uh, have you ever seen interest rates like this? Never. It isn't good that interest rates are 2 3%. That's not good. That's weird. And here it is. If you'd have told me when I was your age, some of you young folks, that I was going to be able to, to refinance my house at 3%, I would have said that's not possible unless the economy is about to crater. And so here we are. Now, if it does, if I'm right. You're right. Yeah. Goes without saying, huh? That's a joke, people on the Internet. But if I'm right. And we are months away from economic, governmental Babylon. Economic Babylon, for sure. The governmental aspect may be away. But once we begin to have a worldwide currency... And by the way, why would we have a worldwide currency since I'm doing this? China has a tremendous amount of our debt. What are they worried about us doing? Printing money and, and devaluing it. Turning it into monopoly money. And so what do they want really badly? They want a worldwide currency that you can't print your way out of. If you're in debt, you just can't get to print more money and get yourself out of debt if they're holding all your debt. Because if they got a, they got a trillion dollars and they do, and you go print five trillion dollars, how much do they have? Well, you can pay them off really fast and you still have four trillion left over. Are they going to buy anything of yours? No. That's monopoly money. How many times have we done this monopoly money thing? How many quantitative easings have we had? Yeah, we're on our third, aren't we? How many do you think we will have? And what will China and Japan, the holders of our debt, scream for? Economic Babylon. Is this good news? Yes. It is good news. Because we will move into the, into the category of those who have seen. And then all of us who have ever said... I just wish I had some concrete, physical something I can sink my teeth in. Well, you're going to have it. And how's it going to affect you? Okay. Enough of that for now. We find ourselves once again in Genesis 2, 3, and 4. Adam, Eve, Satan, Cain, and Abel. And, um, and we're there because we're confronting Romans 5, 12. Let me read it again. Therefore, through one man sin entered, then death through sin. Thus death, death spread to all men, because all men sin. All men sin. All sin. Notice the, the therefore through one man. Uh, thus death spread because. Notice the therefore, the thus, and the because. That's proof language. The Holy Spirit using the Apostle Paul to prove something. He wants to prove an absolute truth here. And he's doing it. The sin decision of Adam, the first federal head of mankind, had as its, had as its consequence the spreading of death, physical death, because all sin. So I, had, I have death now just going everywhere throughout the entire world. And, and I always, as much as I can, I tell you, 
to find the Old Testament complements to the New Testament passages and vice versa. If you have a New Testament passage, there must be an Old Testament uh, complement to it. If you have an Old Testament passage, find a New Testament complement. Do that every time you can. Don't fail to do it. Don't start an investigation of what this particular verse might mean without going first and accumulating where it is in the opposite, if you will, complement. Or the, uh, the old if the new and the new if the old. Um, it should be obvious that Romans 5.12, Therefore through one man sin entered, right? Death spread. All men sin. It should be obvious that Romans 5.12 is referencing Genesis chapters 2 and 3. So when you're reading 5.12, you're really reading uh, Genesis uh, uh, chapters 2 and 3. As does Romans 5.14, by the way. Nevertheless, death spread. I'm sorry. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. What's the obvious question right off the bat? Think about it. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. That's 5.14. Clearly, that is also talking about Genesis 2.3. So therefore, if I'm looking for typology, I have to find what the typology is in 2.3 of Genesis and find it in the New Testament. Immediately, we should be aware of the need to identify the reason for the time period to Adam to Moses because that doesn't seem to make sense, does it? I have a time period, the Bible says, from Adam to Moses. What's the obvious question? That's an important time period. Why is that time period so important? Why not, for example, Adam to Abraham? Why not, for example, Adam to Christ? There's something very important, because neither of those are uh, fit here. It's very important that it's Adam to Moses. Why? And obviously the marriage contract, the Ten Commandments, the Pentateuch, the, uh, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, all of the events of Mount Sinai, that must be something special. That must be from here to here. This is a demarcation line, just like Matthew uh, 12, which is the uh, blasphemy or the rejection of Christ's Messiahship by the nation of Israel, right? So I have a demarcation line that is Adam to Moses, or a period, or a parenthesis, or a bracket, whatever you want to call it, something very important there. But that just starts the questions, doesn't it? Now i got a whole bunch of them flowing out of there. Why Mount Sinai? What exactly at Mount Sinai has a relationship to Adam's transgression? Because that's what it says, a likeness. What about Mount Sinai has a likeness to Adam's transgression? So we must know why this time period is marked Adam to Moses. And, and then we must figure out who are the even those who had not sinned. Because that's what it says, right? Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Okay? Adam identified specifically as a type of Christ. Very important. But he had a transgression. And there are likenesses of it. Even those who did not sin. Who are they even those who had not sinned? Who could they be? They did not sin according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. So, we got another problem, don't we? What exactly is the transgression of Adam? Because it has a likeness. 
And people sin according to the likeness. But not everybody sins according to the likeness. What is the likeness? I'll give you some hints. Some people say it's full knowledge. Because Adam was face to face. And they notice that Moses is face to face. So Moses has a sin that is in the likeness of the transgression of Adam. So all I have to do to figure out what the sin of Adam really was is to find where Moses' sin is the same. And then who else's sin has got to be? It's got to be something in the New Testament that helps me figure out what the likeness of the transgression of Adam is. How much free will, how much full knowledge. Finally, for now, it is absolutely essential. And that, uh, that's not strong enough. I should have rewritten that. It is critical, not essential. It is critical to know that Adam is a type of Jesus Christ. Not a contrast. Not a contrast. That's also true. That's not what it's saying. It's critical to know that Adam is a type of Jesus Christ. Something that Adam does is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Actually, many somethings are. Now, there's contrasts. There's a federal headship contrast. But this is a type, a typology. He actually does something, many somethings, that Jesus Christ will do or did and did. And that Jesus Christ will say and said. Of course, on a much higher level. So we can find out what Adam did and what Adam said and why he did it and and why he said it. And we can find it on a much higher level with Christ in the New Testament. They will complement out. So all we have to do is search through Christ to find Genesis 2 and 3. It's there. And that fulfills prophecies that are in the events of Adam and Eve and Satan, by the way, but more specifically Adam, because he is the one that is called a type. Eve is the type of the what? She is the type of the the church. Out of the side of Adam came Eve. Out of the side of Christ comes the church. So, Adam is the type of Christ. It is without exception that all readers of the Bible who disregard the typology of Adam, without exception, if you disregard the typology of Adam, Romans 5.14, you will completely miss the true and complete meanings of Genesis 2 and 3. So if you're reading Genesis 2 and 3 and you don't have the typological aspects of it figured out, you're not going to understand it. If you don't know... In other words, if you don't know, and you don't understand, or you don't care about Romans 5.14, then you will never understand Genesis 2 and 3. Never. Let me emphasize never. You'll never get it. You'll never know what's going on with Adam and Eve. You'll think it's a simple story. You'll think it has no significance to you. You'll be completely, totally lost. And since the understanding of Genesis 2 and 3 is fundamental to the understanding of what else? All of Scripture, frankly. Then it becomes a serious problem throughout the Bible with respect to comprehending the truths of the Bible, especially the hidden mysteries of the Bible. In other words, you start wrong, you'll stay wrong, and you'll end up wrong. It's a basic math. Okay. Along with Romans 5, 12, and 14 is 1 Timothy 13 and 14. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14. Let me make that correction in case I ever do this sermon again. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell. Let me read it again. For, then, and 
But, what's that? Proof language again. For Adam formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell. For, then, and but. So, get to start noticing these logic proving language uh, that is in the scripture over and over again. Again, Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul is proving something, just as he did in Romans 5, 12, and 14. So, there's two proofs there. Two proofs. Obvious question, what is being proved? And then, where did Jesus Christ, the I Am, Ancient of Days, Creator God, the Lord God Almighty in the flesh, where did he prove the proofs, if you will, or answer the proofs? Or fulfill the proofs, whichever language you prefer. Finally, to, to conclude the introduction to today's lecture, I got two trees. Two trees. Not one tree, two trees. Two. Tree number one, tree number two. You'd be surprised how often that is just brand new to people. You must know there are two trees, not one tree, two trees. Each tree has a consequence and the consequences are not the same. I have a consequence for number one and I have a consequence for number two. So i got to know that. What happens here and what happens here are not the same. Two trees, two consequences. How many trees did Adam and Eve take from? They took from one. They only took from one tree. Eventually, God protects them from going to tree number two. He intervenes. What's the obvious question there? Why? Why doesn't he just do this, hold his arm, step back, and let them go to tree number two? He doesn't. He intervenes and he protects them. What makes God protect them and intervene? Why doesn't he let them go to the second tree? Last week, I developed the true interpretation of the Bible, or I tried to, that God is what? Love-filled. And that the Bible is love-filled. So God protects them from the second tree because... He's love-filled. Would they have gone to the second tree if he doesn't protect them? Yes, they would have. If you think you would have done better, you're... What's the word I want? I see. Idiot comes to mind. I want to offend you. So I won't say that you're an idiot. Stupid comes to mind. I don't want to insult you. So I've got to come up with a better word. Narcissistic. Lacking any common sense. All of us, if we were in that position, we would have ran as fast as we could to the second tree. They didn't. God protects them because the Bible is love-filled. And if the Bible is love-filled, then it follows that the curse, therefore, is love-filled. It is the four-hour sake of Genesis 3.17. And that astonishes people. They say, how can the physical death curse and the toil and the and the uh, sweat of the brow and the tiredness. How can that be for our sake? It must be for our sake. He says it is, and he is love-filled. So therefore, it is a love-filled for our sake event. God is presenting, by the way, in Genesis 3, 14 through 19, he's presenting the solution to sin and death. 
He will be the solution. He will be the last Adam, the second federal head of humanity, because he's love and does not fail. Love does not fail. By the way, if you think your love does not fail, you're not paying much attention to yourself. His love does not fail. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, 1 John 4, 8, and 1 Corinthians 13, 8, for those who are following on the Internet. And seeing the love that is within for your sake and until you return to the dust, Genesis 3.19, that becomes very important and a wonderful key that unlocks this whole entire event of Genesis 2 and 3. Physical death has a relationship to eternal life. There are reasons for physical death. And figuring all of this out, by the way, I think transforms us from running panicked little chickens to calm, comforted soldiers. It's valuable for the Christians to be able to shoot straight and to be wise instead of firing blindly at us at each other. The first thing you do when you pastor a church is make sure you never turn your back on the choir. Because they're going to take you out. Shooting each other in the church is the norm today. And that's sad, but nonetheless very true. Okay, let's dive into this again. And hopefully I can bring things that you who come regularly have not heard me do before. And I don't know if I can anymore because some of you have been with me for a long time. But I I hope I can. I think I can. I sound like the little red train now, don't I? It might be difficult. I've covered this many times. But with the addition of this Internet audience which, as I said in the, in the uh, announcement portion, uh, we're having thousands. I have, I have sermons that have been downloaded by over 2,000 people now, which if you told me that would happen, I would have just gone, no, two people. One of those would have been me, and I wouldn't have really listened. But 2,000 is an astonishing thing. And so they're out there. And I wish, by the way, you people that do listen to this would let us know. We have cliffside.org. Somehow you could let us know who you are and where you are. If just not who you are, just where you are. You can use an alias here. We'll respect your privacy. But it would be nice for us to know you're there. Some of you do that regularly, and, and, and it's very appreciative, appreciated. And I do uh, let the congregation know about you all the time, and it helps us. Um, because we are mostly a volunteer operation. But anyway, some of these aspects have to be repeated for all the folks that are out there to understand. And so I know it's going to be troublesome and problematic a little bit and boring for you that have heard it many times. But let's, uh, let's begin this time by asking the most obvious of the obvious questions with regard to the book of Genesis. Okay, Seth, stop coloring. So, let's ask the most obvious of the obvious questions about Adam and Eve now. Why did Adam make the decision to remain subject to physical death? He made the decision to die physically. Now, I don't know when he thought he would die. Turns out he dies 930 years later. But he didn't know that necessarily. He might have. Very smart, Adam. Wiser than any man that ever lived. Um, 
pre-flood, certainly, and maybe only Solomon gives him a run for his money. But Solomon was deceived. Adam was never deceived. Why did he make the decision to remain subject to physical death? People ask me, how do you get that? Let me put it another way. What did Adam know that made him choose to stay in a poisoned state that would eventually result in physical death? Physical death happened here. This is the tree of death. This is the tree of live forever. Or the tree of forever. Why, if you will, this is the tree that poisoned him. Why not go over to this tree and take the antidote for the poison? If I told every single one of you, all of you who uh, drank the green Kool-Aid that Jonas was afraid of, are now poisoned. I happen to have Diet Coke, which you know cures all things. That and Worcestershire sauce. Everybody knows that. It is a scientific fact. Why can't I say that? The evolutionists say that. Chocolate. Everything's better with chocolate syrup. So of those three, we got, we got, I'm going to give you the Diet Coke. You're all poisoned from the green Kool-Aid. So how many of you would take the Diet Coke? But Adam didn't. He remained subject to physical death. Why did he do that? What did Adam know that made him choose to stay in a poisoned state that would eventually result in physical death? The woman whom Adam would soon name the mother of life, Eve, also stayed subject to physical death. The answer to that question is fundamental. Why did they do that? Why did Adam stay like this? Why did he make this decision? Then how did he accomplish staying in it? Because what stops him at this time from going right over? They're both essentially in the mist. How close they are together, we don't know. But once, see, Eve goes to this tree and she returns to Adam. We don't know how far away they were, but I can prove to you as the sermons go on that Adam was not with Eve because she was the first to sin. And he, if he were with her, he would have allowed her to sin and not protected her, which makes him the first to sin. So they couldn't have been side by side. Clearly, uh, and I know you'll read Genesis and you'll think it says that, but I'll prove to you that it doesn't mean that. I can be with Lori and not be side by side. Okay? Now, what stops him then from not coming back with Eve and taking from that tree? What's a better question? What stopped Eve? Why didn't Eve just go from, okay, I'm poisoned, my eyes are open, I know I'm dying, oh, crud. That was close. <laughs> I, I am a trained professional. I was able to get crud out of there at the last minute. Second, what stops Eve from just going from here to here? She doesn't. What does she do? She goes to find Adam. What made her do it? She's already there completely by herself. What's the next obvious question? Why didn't Adam stop her? We'll get to that in a minute. But Eve is there. And then she doesn't go there. Instead, she goes to Adam. What made her do it? And Adam not only doesn't go, but he manages to keep her from going back. 
What stopped them? How did they resist? How long? You see, Adam and Eve most certainly could have reached out and taken from the tree of life and remained in sin forever. Either one of them or both. Genesis 3.20-24. through 24. But neither did it. At some point, God comes and intervenes. Read it. Genesis 3, 20 through 24. He intervenes and he protects them from the inevitability of progressive sin and the depravity that comes with it. Now back to my salt, right? Eventually, the salt loses its favor and you become more and more and more depraved. So eventually, both of them would have lost the ability to resist and they would have gone to the second tree and been in sin forever, just like Satan obviously is. But God surrounds the tree of life, the tree of forever, the tree of eternity, and he protects, he puts a flaming sword, the cherubim, and the flame, and he allows, uh, therefore, the uh, salvation now is available. It's always available, but we're inside of time, and we look at it from an inside of time position. But again, how did Adam hold out? Did Adam fully comprehend his problem? Had he figured this out? And the answer is yes. And that's the reason for the fig leaves. One of you folks on the internet wrote me a question and asked me about the fig leaves. And I will tell you, this is where you figure out the fig leaves. That is telling you that Adam had thought this through and figured out almost every aspect of it. He was not just reacting. He literally had a plan. It's my ever so humble opinion that Adam uh, had contingencies, a systematic approach. Think of the most organized spreadsheet if you, you can imagine. If this happens, then I'll do this. If that happens, then I'll do this. If this and this happen, then I'll have to do this. Who did he share it with? What's the evidence that he shared it? He shared it to Eve. How do I know? Because she came back to him. She knew the plan too. He put a plan in place. If you go to that tree and you eat from that tree, here's what you got to do. And this, then this is what we have to do. He memorized, you see, Genesis 2, 15 through 18. Eve never heard those things. He had to tell her about it. And he memorized it. The things God said aloud to Adam. When Adam was being installed as the first federal head, if you will, the second king of Edom, Eden. He's the second king of Eden. Satan was the first king of Eden. But Satan was not a federal head. How do I know that he was not a federal head? Because I have only one third of the angelic host, which is lost. Anyway, during this ceremony, God says something aloud. What's the obvious question? This is the installing Adam as the first federal head of humanity ceremony. And God says things aloud. What's the obvious question? Who heard it? Did you ever study the ceremony? We'll read the ceremony together. Then the Lord God, second uh, Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. He is now in authority over the Garden of Eden. And if you read Ezekiel uh, you will find that the first uh, tender and keeper of a garden that was also named Eden, though it was a mineral garden, was Satan. But here he is. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree 
of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay? Keep going. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. What's the obvious questions here? Tell me an obvious, ask me an obvious question. Well, I'll go even further. Who's, how loud of a voice is he using? Who's listening? He's the second king of Eden. Where's the first king of Eden? Is the first king of Eden, has he got a stenographer? Are we writing down this ceremony? Because I got a new king of Eden. And and the first king is still around, isn't he? And God's saying, and, and God says this stuff about the king and Eden. And everybody heard it. We'll get to that in a second. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Adam named every one. What did he name them, by the way? I ask this question all the time. Names. Absolutely right. He named every single one. How big of a capacity does he have? Every single one. He named them. Just like you would. Just like I would. Do you think he does genus, species, and all the rest of that? No. He doesn't do that. He names them. That's an important thing to remember as we go through this. Anyway, Adam heard those words. This was his ceremony, his installation as the first federal head. Satan heard those words. Who else? Satan's angels heard those words. God's angels heard those words. And what did everybody do when they heard those words? When they saw this ceremony, this installation of the second king, who was a federal head. What did they do? What would you do? You'd form committees, right? And you would sit down and try to figure out what they meant. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. What's that mean? Why is he saying that? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Why? For in the day that you eat of it. What's the next question? What day is that going to be? Is it implied that you can't help but eat of it? Some people think so. We'll argue that in the weeks to come. Everyone began to think. Everyone began to try to figure out what God was saying. It's my hope that you're trying to figure out what they thought. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. See, there was the ability to understand good and evil there, wasn't there? You shall not eat. If I, if I can know the difference between good and evil, what am I? I heard this a few weeks ago. I'm a free will. I, ha- I have liberty. Have freedom. You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What did Adam ask when he heard those words? What did the angels ask? What did Satan ask? What did everybody ask? What you, you're in Adam's position and you're given, you're, you're the new king of Eden. You know there's another king. You see him over there. He comes to talk to you, baby. Trust me. Really fast. 
He lets you know, I want my job back. You're going to know all about the first king pretty soon. You know he's a threat. You know he's fallen. You know he's sinful. Very soon. And you've got these two trees. What's the first question you're going to ask? You're going to ask, what's death? You're going to ask, why do I have two trees? What is the purpose of the two trees? Why are you doing this? The tree of good and evil, surely death, and the tree of forever remaining. You likewise should know the purpose of the two trees, just like Adam and the angels and Satan and the angels of Satan understood the purpose of the two trees. And the purpose then of verse 18, which immediately follows. See, I have put these two trees up here. And everybody's asking, why do we have these two trees? And there's something about death. I got all this going on. And then what's the very next thing that explains it to you? Did you think that these are just words on a piece of paper that don't connect one to another? Because they do connect one to another. I read it again. And the Lord God said, this is all part of the same ceremony, right? We've got to go through the ceremony. First ceremony, part of the ceremony is I got the two trees and you're in Eden. What's the second part of the ceremony? Same ceremony. And Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper. That has something to do with the two trees. And then you're going to name the animals. That has something to do with what? Two trees. It's all fitting together. In the, it's all in the same context. They're not individual. He doesn't say, well, you've got a couple of trees. Okay, let's change subjects now. I'm going to make you a woman. Okay, let's change, change subjects. I'm going, to, I'm going to go name some animals. Those are not on separate pages. They're not even separate books. They're not even in, they're side by side by side. They are in a logical order. One net follows the other. You need to begin to look at them that way and see how they connect. See, the purpose, I will make him a helper, follows immediately. And so does the naming of the animals. One, two, three. I have three elements of this side by side ceremony. Adam, full of wisdom, able to stand undeceived, 1 Timothy 2.14, against Satan, the father of lies and murder, would know that there is a connection between the two trees and the woman, and he would begin to do something immediately. What would he begin to do? He'd begin to plan. Because he knows. He knows the purpose of the two trees. You tell me the purpose of the two trees. How many decisions do I have? I have two decisions. First decision is, do I eat from this tree or not? What's the second tree? What's the second decision? If I do eat from this tree, do I eat from this tree or not? What is that? Decisions. What are decisions? Existence. That's right. Very good. Adam would make a plan. What would he think? He knows he's what? He knows he's the federal head. If he makes the decision to go to the tree and eat from it, what happens to Eve? She dies. He's the federal head. What happens to Eve if he falls first? She automatically falls. He's the federal head. If she goes, what happens to Adam? Nothing. He's the federal head, not her. So what does Adam have to plan for? He's not deceivable. 
he doesn't get deceived. What's he got a plan for? Who is the one that will be deceived? Does he know it? Can he figure it out? Why didn't... Here's the the next obvious question. Why didn't Adam imprison the woman? Would that be your idea? Because people ask me that all the time. He knew if he figured out that she was going to go to the first tree, why doesn't he bind her up and throw her in a hole? Stop her. I mean, get more ridiculous, more absurd. Why didn't he restrict her movement, protect her from herself? Who does this sound like now? That's right, the mayor of New York City, and you eating and drinking sodas, right? Why didn't he protect her from herself? Much like our government tries to do. Well, Adam is wiser. He's not deceived. Why shouldn't he make all of Eve's decisions for her? Does that sound politically... Incorrect. Contemporary now. Why shouldn't he make all of her decisions? Don't let her make any decisions. Doesn't he know best? Shouldn't he keep her safe? Is that being loved? Is that love filled? No, it's not. It's totalitarianism. Adam is a type of Christ. Adam is love filled. Eve is a free will being. Eve has existence. Eve has liberty. Adam did not and would not have a plan that would take any of that away from her. Adam would instead be ready for what? The eventuality, the possibility of the consequences of her free will liberty. Because there is this relationship now forming in, in Genesis 2, 3, and 4 in the Bible. Free will, existence. Number two, death, physical death and the curse. Number three, murder, death, spiritual. Number four, consequences, the four, for our sake. Number five, love filled salvation. Number six, childbirth. Next week, I'll go over that list and we'll delve into it. Just wanted to get it off the table today so you can know that they're there. For the interim, consider the connection between physical death and salvation. The last question of, of this introduction to this section. Let me ask you this. Uh, can anyone be saved without physical death? No. Well, yeah. So how is it that physical death is in- essential then, somehow? How does this work? By the way, those of you who say, well, I'll be raptured, I won't have physical death. Will you? He says he will raise you up, and then what will he do? Change you. Sounds like death. How does he change you? Is that physical death? How about Elijah and Enoch? Are they in? Are they in the heavenly estate in a sinful body, or have they been changed? Christ is the great physician. By the way, he could heal himself. He did. He raises himself from the dead. Christ is not a torturing mad surgeon, as Williams uh, postulated or made you think about. Christ is the love-filled creator God with a plan. Adam had a plan. Christ had a plan. If I put those plans side by side, I see very, very similar. But Adam's a mistake in it. Christ is perfect. Seeing that the uh, similarity between the plans is very important to you to understand. Adam was the most like Christ 
that we could ever imagine. Which is why he's identified as such. So, he was directly from God and with God in a way that we can't even begin to understand and could not be deceived by Satan. Give him some credit for what he thought of. Let's rise and be dismissed.